Chapter 6 of War by Pierre Loti. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patrick McAfee. War by Pierre Loti. Translated by Marjorie Laurie. Chapter 6 The Phantom Basilica October 1914 To gaze upon her, our legendary and wonderful Basilica of France, to bid her a last farewell before she should crumble away to her inevitable downfall. I had ordered a detour of two hours in my service motor car at the end of some special duty from which I was returning. The October morning was misty and cold. The hillsides of Champagne were deserted that day, and their vineyards, with dark brown leaves, wet with rain, seemed to be wrapped completely in a kind of shining fleece. We had also passed through a forest, keeping our eyes open and our weapons ready in case of a meeting with Ulan marauders. At last, far away in the fog, uplifting all its great height above a sprinkling of reddish squares, doubtless the roofs of houses, we saw the form of a mighty church. This was evidently the basilica. At the entrance to Reims, there are defenses of all kinds, stone barriers, trenches, chevaux de frise, sentinels with cross bayonets. To gain admission, it is not sufficient to be in uniform and military accoutrement. Explanations have to be made and the countersign given. In the great city where I am a stranger, I have to ask my way to the cathedral, for it is no longer in sight. Its lofty gray silhouette, which, viewed from afar, dominated everything so imposingly, as a castle of giants would dominate the houses of dwarfs, now seems to have crouched down to hide itself. To get to the cathedral, people reply, you must first turn to the right over there, and then to the left, and then to the right, etc., and my motor car plunges into the crowded streets. There are many soldiers, regiments on the march, motor ambulances in single file, but there are many ordinary footfarers, too, unconcerned as if nothing were happening, and there are even many well-dressed women with prayer books in their hands in honor of Sunday. At a street crossing, there is a gathering of people in front of a house whose walls bear signs of recent damage, the reason being that a shell has just fallen there. It is just one of their little brutal jests, so to speak. We understand the situation. Look, you, it is a simple pastime, just a matter of killing a few persons on a Sunday morning for choice, because there are more people in the streets on Sunday mornings. But it seems indeed as if this town had reconciled itself to its lot to live its life watched by the remorseless binoculars under the fire of savages lurking on the neighboring hillside. The wayfarers stop for a moment to look at the walls and the marks made by the shell bursts, and then they quietly continue their Sunday walk. This time, we are told, it is women and little girls who lie weltering in their blood, victims of that amiable peasantry. We hear about it and then think no more of the matter, as if 
it were of the smallest importance in times such as these. This quarter of the town is now deserted. Houses are closed. A silence as of mourning prevails. And at the far end of a street appear the tall gray gates, the lofty pointed arches with their marvelous carvings, and the soaring towers. There is no sound. There is not a living soul in the square where the phantom basilica still stands in majesty, where the wind blows cold and the sky is dark. The Basilica of Rheims still keeps its place as if by miracle, but so riddled and rent it is that it seems ready to collapse at the slightest shock. It gives the impression of a huge mummy, still erect and majestic, but which the least touch would turn into ashes. The ground is strewn with its precious fragments. It has been hastily enclosed with a hoarding of white wood, and within its bounds lie, in little heaps, its consecrated dust, fragments of stucco, shivered panes of glass, heads of angels, clasped hands of saints, male and female. The calcined stonework of the tower on the left, from top to bottom, has assumed a strange color, like that of baked flesh, and the saints, still standing upright in rank on the cornices, have been decorticated, as it were, by fire. They have no longer either faces or fingers, yet, still retaining their human form, they resemble corpses ranged in rows, their contours but faintly defined under a kind of reddish shroud. We make a circuit of the square without meeting anyone, and the hoarding which isolates the fragile, still wonderful phantom is everywhere firmly closed. As for the old palace attached to the basilica, the episcopal palace where the kings of France were wont to repose on the day of their coronation, it is nothing more than a ruin, without windows or roof, blackened all over by tongues of flame. What a peerless jewel was this church, more beautiful even than Notre Dame de Paris, more open to the light, more ethereal, more soaringly uplifted with its columns, like long reeds, astonishingly fragile considering the weight they bear, a miracle of the religious art of France, a masterpiece which the faith of our ancestors had wakened into being in all its mystic purity before the sensual ponderousness of that which we have agreed to call the Renaissance had come to us from Italy, materializing and spoiling all. Oh, how gross, how cowardly, how imbecile was the brutality of those who fired those volleys of scrap iron with full force against tracery of such delicacy that had stayed aloft in the air for centuries in confidence. No battles, no invasions, no tempests ever daring to assail its beauty. That great closed house yonder in the square must be the archbishop's palace. I venture to ring at the door and request the privilege of entering the church. His eminence, I am told, is at mass, but would soon return if I would wait. And while I am waiting, the priest who acts as my host tells me the history of the burning of the Episcopal Palace. First of all, they sprinkled the roofs with I know not what diabolical preparation. 
Then, when they threw their incendiary bombs, the woodwork burnt like straw, and everywhere you saw jets of green flame, which burned with a noise like that of fireworks. Indeed, the barbarians had long prepared with studied foresight this deed of sacrilege, in spite of their idiotically absurd pretexts and their shameless denials. That which they had desired to destroy here was the very heart of ancient France, impelled as much by some superstitious fancy as by their own brutal instincts, and upon this task they bent their whole energy, while in the rest of the town nothing else or almost nothing suffered damage. Could no attempt be made, I asked, to replace the burnt roof of the basilica, to cover over as soon as possible those, these arches, which will not otherwise withstand the ravages of next winter? Undoubtedly, he replies, there is a risk that at the first falls of snow, the first showers of rain, all this will crumble to ruins, more especially as the calcined stones have lost their power of resistance but we cannot even attempt to preserve them a little, for the Germans do not let us out of their sight. It is the cathedral, always the cathedral, that they watch through their field glasses. And as soon as a single person appears in the bell turret of a tower, the rain of shells begins again. No, there is nothing to be done. It must be left to the grace of God. On his return, his eminence graciously provides me with a guide who has the keys of the hoarding, and at last I penetrate into the ruins of the basilica, into the nave, which, being stripped bare, appears the loftier and vaster for it. It is cold there and sad enough for tears. It is perhaps this unexpected chill, a chill far more piercing than that of the world without, which at first grips you and disconcerts you. Indeed, of the somewhat heavy perfume that generally hangs about old basilicas, Smoke of so much incense burned there, emanations of so many beers blessed by the priests, of so many generations who have hastened there to wrestle and pray. Instead of this, there is a damp, icy wind which whistles through crevices in the walls, through broken windows and gaps in the vaults. Towards those vaults up yonder, pierced here and there by shrapnel, the eyes are raised immediately, instinctively, to gaze at them. The sight is led up towards them, as it were, by all those columns that jut out, shooting aloft in sheaves for their support. They have flying curves, these vaults, of exquisite grace, so designed, it seems, that they may not hinder prayers in their upward flight nor force back to earth a gaze that aims at heaven. One never grows tired of bending the head backwards to gaze at them, those sacred vaults hastening to destruction, and then high up, too, quite high up, throughout the whole length of the nave is the long succession of those almost ethereal pointed arches which support the vaults and arches, alike yet not rigidly uniform and so harmonious despite their elaborate carving that they give rest to the eye that follows them upwards in their soaring perspective. These vast ceilings of stone are so airy in appearance and moreover so distant that they do not oppress or confine the spirit. Indeed, they seem freed from all heaviness, almost insubstantial. Moreover, 
it is wiser to move on under that roof with head turned upward and not to watch too closely where the feet may fall for that pavement reverberating rather sadly has been sullied and blackened by charred human flesh it is known that on the day of the conflagration the church was full of wounded germans lying on straw mattresses which caught fire and a scene of horror ensued worthy of a version of dante all these beings their green wounds scorched by the flames dragged themselves along screaming on red stumps trying to win through doors too narrow renowned too is the heroism of those stretcher bearers priests and nuns who risked their lives in the midst of falling bombs in their attempts to save these unhappy wretches whom their own german brothers had not even thought to spare yet they did not succeed in saving all some remained and were burnt to death in the nave leaving unseemly clots of blood on the sacred flagstones where formerly processions of kings and queens had slowly trailed their ermine mantles to the sound of great organs and plain song. Look, said my guide, showing me a wide hole in one of the aisles. This is the work of a shell which they hurled at us yesterday evening, and now come and see the miracle. And he leads me into the choir where the statue of Joan of Arc, preserved it may be said by some special providence, still stands unharmed with its eyes of gentle ecstasy. The most irreparable disaster is the ruin of those great glass windows which the mysterious artists of the 13th century had piously wrought in meditation and dreams, assembling together in hundreds, saints, male and female, with translucent draperies and luminous aureoles. There again, German scrap iron has crashed through in great senseless volleys, shattering everything. Irreplaceable masterpieces are scattered on the flagstones in fragments that can never be reassembled, golds, reds, and blues, of which the secret has been lost. Vanished are the transparent rainbow colors, perished those saintly personages in the pretty simplicity of their attitudes, with their small, pale, ecstatic faces, a thousand precious fragments of that glasswork, which, in the course of centuries, has acquired an iridescence, something in the manner of opals, lie on the ground where indeed they still shine like gems. Today there is silence in the basilica, as well as in the deserted square around it, a death-like silence within these walls, which for so long had vibrated to the voice of organs and the old ritual chants of France. The cold wind alone makes a kind of music this Sunday morning, and at times, when it blows harder, there is a tinkering like the fall of very light pearls. It is the falling of the little that still remained in place of the beautiful glass windows of the 13th century, crumbling away entirely beyond recovery. A whole splendid cycle of our history, which seemed to live in the sanctuary, with a life almost tangible, though essentially spiritual, has suddenly been plunged into the abyss of things gone by, of which even the memory will soon pass away. The great barbarism has swept through this place, the modern barbarism from beyond the Rhine, a thousand times worse than the barbarism of old times, because it is doltishly 
outrageously self-satisfied and consequently fundamental, incurable, and final, destined, if it be not crushed, to overwhelm the world in a sinister night of eclipse. In truth, it is strange how that statue of Joan of Arc in the choir has remained standing, calm, intact, immaculate, without even the smallest scratch upon her gown. End of chapter 6 Recorded by Patrick McAfee Chicago March 16, 2011